This is the KPMG Current Conversations podcast. In this episode, is energy industry perspectives from down under. Welcome to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast, brought to you by the KPMG Global Energy Institute. Current Conversations is a podcast series featuring in-depth conversations with the nation's top energy executives and luminaries to explore today's most pressing issues and emerging challenges affecting our industry. On September 9th, 2020, Regina Mayer, Global and U.S. Head of Energy at KPMG, connected with Frank Calabria, CEO and Managing Director of Origin Energy, Australia's leading integrated energy company. Despite the current tough times, Mr. Calabria is enthusiastic about the future of the energy industry. He believes that energy companies have a great challenge to rise to and bring their customers along. And by continuing to innovate, improving the customer experience, taking actions, and being bold, he thinks it's an exciting place to be. Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me, Frank. It is truly my pleasure to chat with you today. It's good to be with you today, Regina. Yeah, thanks for joining me from Down Under. You currently serve as the CEO and Managing Director of Origin, which is Australia's leading integrated energy company. I was quite fascinated by the integrated model that you have, which extends all the way from gas exploration and production to LNG exports, and then also power generation and energy retailing with over 4 million customers in Australia. It honestly covers the whole gamut, as we sometimes talk about, from wellhead to burner tip or, or light switch, which you don't always see. So tell us more about your company and its evolution. Yeah, sure. Uh, so Origin listed uh, on the Australian Stock Exchange only about 20 years ago. Uh, but prior to that, it's really its foundation was as a gas business, um, having both resource but also selling really to, to customers, um, small and large in the Australian market. So over time, we've really evolved the business. Firstly, um, we grew a retail business as electricity privatisation took place in the 1990s and 2000s. And it is worth noting that under Australian antitrust laws, energy companies like ourselves that sit across retail and generation um, are not able to also own the distribution and transmission assets. So it truly is a competitive market. And so we grew our retail customer base. That retail customer base sits over 4 million customers, and that's across electricity and gas. And as time's grown, both solar and recent times broadband, uh, but we had access to gas resources, and so that was really to not only serve our customers, but it grew that we then started to build peaking plants for gas-fired generation, which are required in the Australian market, where we have sort of very high peaking loads over our summer months. And then what really transpired is that we discovered more gas than was even going to be consumed in the, in the uh, domestic market through power generation and by our customers, and that's really how the evolution of the LNG business then emerged. We not only started to produce gas and sell it domestically, but now have a 37.5% interest in Australia Pacific LNG alongside ConocoPhillips and Sinopec. And today what's happened is that the energy market has evolved, so have we. So we run a diverse portfolio. We have coal, gas, pumped hydro, wind and solar across our power generation, about 7,500 megawatts. 
and uh, over the coming months we'll complete another large wind farm and that will take renewables and storage up to 25% of our portfolio. So very much a, a business in my mind that's focused on the customer and the end-use markets but also evolving the energy mix uh, as that changes over time. And that's really how we've landed being a, uh, a company, an energy company that um, it really is uh, focused right across that energy value chain. And it, it's a fascinating evolution. And I had the privilege of being in Sydney and Perth about a year and a half ago. Now it's COVID and heaven only knows when I'll be able to enter Australia again. Mm-hmm. And I did notice, you know, a lot of, not, I won't say concern, but emphasis on Australia preserving its own natural resources for its own benefits. So it sounds like you've evolved the model where, first and foremost, you serve your domestic markets, and then you evolve that energy mix to take advantage of renewables and then export what's excess to other markets. Is that a fair representation of how you've evolved? Yes, it is a fair representation. I think the scale of the gas resources in Australia, when you're actually making large investments, they need to be underpinned, as you would imagine, by uh, commitments um, and an understanding of where those volumes would go. So there's no doubt that in the case of our situation, as we were contemplating the development of larger-scale coal bed methane resources, the LNG market enabled us to underpin the large capital expenditure that's required, and that's benefited both the domestic market but also the export market. The focus on separating the distribution system from generation or retail is interesting. I sit in Texas. We have a deregulated power market, but every utility competes differently. So you still have independent power generators. You have the gen tailing with power generation coupled with retailing. You still have T&D. You still have those that own the entire value chain. Um, that was an interesting comment about how the Australian market differs. So let's pivot now and talk about 2020. Clearly significantly challenging year for the world, but also uniquely mm-hmm. so for Australia. We started with dealing with the bushfires, you know, before COVID that we're all still navigating. How have you adapted Origin to navigate these challenging times? Yeah, so let's take uh, those in turn because you're right, we've had both bushfires and, and COVID occur in one year, so there's no doubt challenges. And probably focused initially on bushfires, which are obviously were very severe across Australia over the summer. And I probably think about this in three um, dimensions, and we can also cover it the same way with um, COVID, and that is really around our people, um, our customers, and then our assets. And from our perspective, uh, the bushfires, fortunately, um, didn't have a severe impact on our people. Um, and uh, that's always our first and foremost consideration in safety and well-being, and we were able to navigate that well. Uh, in relation to our customers, it obviously presented a significant challenge for those communities impacted, and we provided support to those customers and continue to do so. And uh, maybe the, the most significant thing really was that those bushfires went very close to a couple of our generating assets, and we have full bushfire management plans for our assets, and we... We do work very closely with the fire and emergency authorities on the management of the land around these sites. And I have to say that whilst the uh, bushfire activity was close, uh, we were well prepared and able to monitor and manage that through the summer. And that's obviously very key for us and something we have to consider now, I think, um, continually as we go through hot summers. 
there's no doubt that um, prolonged drought conditions, which, you know, through some contribution by climate change as well in Australia, has actually contributed to that severity of those bushfires. We left that situation um, having, I think, navigated it well in the circumstances and went straight into COVID. And as you know, there's no playbook for COVID. Uh, we um, were very much focused initially on, once again, the safety and well-being of our people and we were able to move a large proportion of and the majority of our people to work remotely, literally within a matter of weeks in, uh, in March. And that includes all of our frontline customer teams or, and people working on trading desks. And that's been remarkably um, successful for us and uh, clearly has us, like many other organisations, contemplating ways of working. We've been on the journey for flexibility, but it also means how do we think about that going forward? And I think that's one aspect of the way we would adapt the organisation. Uh, so secondly, the, the key impact really has been um, on customers. And we have been fortunate that our government did act swiftly in providing support to customers and, uh, and also acted quickly, I would say, in terms of restrictions and therefore the health impacts on our um, society have been lesser than what I've observed across the world, including, including your country and the United States. And so that has actually uh, meant that um, the support has been provided on a timely basis uh, and we've continued to support customers by, you know, certainly not disconnecting and not default listing customers and offering payment extensions and continuing uh, to monitor the situation and provide the support for those um, that can't afford to pay. Um, clearly, um, that's actually been a significant thing for us, um, but I think we've adapted well. And uh, the last aspect really is the um, fact that we've had lower demand for energy and having a portfolio of assets across the chain that enable us to adapt to the changing market circumstances is an important characteristic as well. So we're going to continue to monitor that situation, but clearly um, it's certainly we've learned a lot. I think there's a lot of positives we'll take out of it in terms of how we run our business going forward. Definitely some lasting changes and things that we've learned coming out of this. Um, and you had a fiscal year end of June 30s. So you just published your results on August 20th, a, a few weeks ago. What are you feeling about FY21? And do you see us recovering, or uh, how do you how do you think FY21 is going to play out? Yeah. yeah, so we our underlying profit was stable in FY20, and in fact, we were I think able to adapt in the short term with lower demand and responding our portfolio. But when we look forward to FY21, some of the, the, the emerging trends will present um, uh, headwinds for us, uh, and most notably, really, the fact that uh, the lower demand outlook um, and the supply-demand outlook for our key commodities being oil linked to our LNG, and really JCC or Brent linked to LNG, um, electricity wholesale prices, remember, in a competitive electricity market here as well, um, and, and also gas prices have all got downward pressure on them. And so those will um, impact on our, um, on our earnings to be lower this year. And what is most, and I think it really is then the, the path of demand re recovery, we're certainly seeing in all states except Victoria, where one of our states in Australia is in a stage four lockdown, we've certainly seen electricity demand um, recover back close to 
previous levels um, for other states. Um, so I expect that we're going to actually see a gradual uh, but not sharp recovery and therefore um, we need to adapt to the way we run our business in that context um, and that's really what we're focused on now, the flexibility and our ability to respond in each of our business units. It's terrific that you are seeing at least a stable recovery, particularly given how Australia, as you pointed out, has responded to the pandemic and that you have been able to move around more now in your various states. And the other thing that I think is fascinating and picking up off of one of your earlier comments is the importance of the utility sector to become uber essential, right, to keep the power on uh, for home, for work, for healthcare. It's, it's amplified the importance the sector plays in society. Yeah, I think that's right, uh, Regina, and um, I should have actually said that, that our first and foremost, not only the safety and well-being of our people, but maintaining a reliable supply of energy is absolutely critical, and it was remiss of me not to have that as the first point, but we take that as a given, and that's our role, and we're very proud about the fact that we've been able to do that seamlessly over the last several months. Um, I think that just to, to, to expand on one of the points you made then, um, there are some restrictions, clearly tight restrictions in one of our states, Victoria, and there are still restrictions on mobility. What I was really seeing, though, however, is that compared to, say, um, April in, um, in all other states other than Victoria, which are not subject to the same lockdown, we're seeing you know, the demand for electricity get back closer. But what we haven't seen yet is a rebound in the wholesale electricity price, which has come off dramatically, and that generally is a, a combination of, as you know, supply and demand and uh, how the system responds to that. So that's, um, that's a key driver for us uh, going forward. Clearly a lot of downward pressure on commodity prices um, and affecting a lot of us. But you have two different businesses. One is integrated gas and one is energy markets. I wanted to talk first about the integrated gas business because I saw that you shipped your 500th cargo of LNG via your partnership with Australia Pacific LNG. How do you see the LNG market evolving given this commodity price challenge and some of the global supply and demand dynamics that we've been discussing? Yeah, so I, I, I certainly see when we look forward over time, uh, and, and probably um, I'm capturing here um, a post-COVID view as much as anything, but we do see the demand for LNG continuing to grow. Um, the market certainly is maturing into one where you're seeing greater cargo flexibility for buyers, you're seeing financial contracts seeing more liquidity and you're seeing short-term contracts being the norm. So there's no doubt that there's uh, dimensions to the LNG um, market that are evolving underneath, but, but overall we see the, um, the LNG demand growing. It clearly has demand strong out of Asia and in particular we see that growth coming from the Southeast Asian markets over time which are expected to increase their imports heading towards 2030. Uh, so we certainly feel that that's actually a good long-term trend for the LNG uh, demand in the mix. I should make it clear that, um, that policy planning and the move through COVID is no doubt going to see um, infrastructure and cleaner energy infrastructure build in our view. Um, we do see that our renewable energy sources will continue to form an increasing proportion of the energy mix, uh, but we also see LNG playing a key role 
um, under all the scenarios we look over the over the coming over the coming years. So, I think the current low price environment for LNG and for gas more broadly is a function of that long cycle supply, because as you know, the supply that's coming on now is sanctioned in the middle of the previous decade. So we do have that oversupply in the current environment, and there's clearly a number of responses to that in the short term, which I'm happy to expand on if you'd like. Yeah, sure. Please do. Because I'm, I'm also wondering, do you see the potential for supply to be limited? Granted, you might not see that for another five to ten years, but given that the price is so much lower, some of the FIDs could be challenged or some of the new builds could be challenged. Do you see supply and demand coming more into balance? Does that create a competitive advantage for you in the future? How do you see all of that evolving? Yeah, so I think just firstly for for people that may not be aware of what we have, Australia Pacific LNG, as I said, is a joint venture between Origin, Conica, Philips, and uh, Sinopec, and we have um, the large majority of the volumes that we export under long-term contracts. So we're not as impacted um, as much relatively as others that may be selling into shorter-term contracts, but also to the spot markets and the, and domestic markets. So having an asset that's actually and having a venture that's performing well and, and is, is a, is a low-cost producer is, I think, a good place to be in this market. Uh, what we're seeing, obviously, is LNG prices have tested short-run marginal costs uh, for US projects over recent times, and you've seen an immediate um, response in terms of cargoes, particularly in June. You know, you saw cargoes reduced. Um, I think what you've seen also is that you've seen some of the medium-term supply um, signals of a response there with cancellations for FIDs. So the market is obviously oversupplied. Um, therefore, uh, I think we're seeing a supply response to that. The demand, I think, trajectory is one where there will be, um, I think, really is connected to the way COVID plays out over time. Um, and therefore, I think the move back towards matching supply and demand is really, I think, driven as much by that um, demand line. I think there will continue to be supply responses, uh, and uh, but, but that's the trajectory that we see. And, and therefore, whilst that oversupply occurs, you can see that the uh, certainly the prices for LNG have been closer towards um, short-run marginal cost, and, and it's going to take some time for those to recover. And being a low-cost provider. Yeah, being a low-cost provider is important. I should add, however, that there is actually one other dimension that you can see right now, and that's global regas capacity uh, for consuming markets is certainly um, now hitting 10 years highs in terms of the capacity under construction. So you are also seeing um, a response from that side of the market as well. That's worth noting. Right, so the ability to take on those cargoes um, by other areas, so that's that's exciting. I did see an analysis yeah. as well that said 2020 might be one of the first years in a, a couple decades where there are no new FIDs for LNG that are that are mm -hmm. moved forward in yeah. this year. So let's yeah. turn our attention to your energy markets business. Uh, I note your emphasis and your corporate orientation around a, a customer first strategy. And again, I said I sit in Texas, and I do shop my electricity. So tell me what it feels like to be an Origin customer, and how do you continue to demonstrate and reinforce that commitment, given that it is a highly competitive market? 
Yeah, it is a highly competitive market, and and uh, we just talked about another highly competitive market, globally for LNG, that you can see is emerging as well. But in a highly competitive market, um, remember that uh, we talked about earlier that you know we're we're really competing on our ability um, to attract and retain customers every day, and uh, and therefore what that means is that the customer experience needs to be exceptional. I think you need to also have a low cost to serve. And I think you also need to be offering the propositions to your customers over time that are meeting their their requirements, particularly in a world that's going to change. So we feel trust um, is is as important as ever as a foundation point. And I might just touch on how we see those energy markets evolving. Um, And we'll also touch on a little bit of octopus energy later. But what we've seen really is that, you know, we really do believe that um, today, yes, we are selling electricity, natural gas, we sell LPG, and we sell solar. Um, but over time, um, you know, you're seeing this trend that will continue um, of decentralisation and distributed energy. We also see increasingly a world that's more digitally connected and devices will be connected. And so, therefore, the companies, the energy companies that will be successful will be those that are able to um, harness the data and create value for their customers and be really able to evolve their, as I say, their propositions to the customers. Energy providers will become aggregators. Customers will entrust us to run their distributed generation and consumption. They'll, they'll trust that through the ability through connected devices and to do that in the most efficient way. So I think really very, very much about the fact that um, engagement with our customers, um, making it easy for them, uh, getting the basics right, providing great customer service. And what I would say at Origin is that we've been on that path for um, a number of years. It's great to see our strategic NPS has continued to grow year after year after the, over the last several, four or five years and continue to grow strongly. Um, we've continued to engage differently with our customers um, digital is the way that we is now by, by the dominant way our customers engage with us, um, and we've obviously and we've also got a number of other um, products that we're we're certainly introducing into the market now. We're not going to be a leading market, I don't believe, on electric vehicles. They're coming, but not as fast as some of the markets around the world. But certainly, the intersection of storage, demand management, and, uh, and and electric vehicles is really quite an exciting opportunity. But really, with the at the outset of that, you really have to get that trust right with the customers. So I think today our customers trust us more. We've got more to go, and they would see that we're evolving the ways um, of dealing with them. So we're making it simple and easy, and that uh, is, as I say, such a fantastic foundation to continue to build on. Well, and it's important that you already had that foundation because one of the lasting impacts, we believe, of COVID is trust as a new form of brand and customer currency that customers will want to do business more with with companies that they trust that will keep them safe, that will manage their data privacy, that will focus on value, that will be easy to deal with. And we haven't found in a lot of markets that utilities in particular have garnered that type of relationship with their customers. So you're ahead of the game for sure. So Frank, you said you'd talk about Octopus Energy and I am fascinated by that one. Uh, you committed to their Kraken platform. You know, a lot of our clients are implementing billing and customer management systems, but they're not 
necessarily going cloud-based and they're relying on more traditional vendors. So choice, transparency in the hands of everyday users and building that trust. What prompted you to make the investment in Octopus and how does that relate to the, the brand promise and the customer engagement that you already described? Yeah, so building on my last, my last comment where really we believe that those future energy companies will need to not only have exceptional customer experience in a competitive market, they'll need to also be low-cost operators and they'll also need to be able to integrate new products and propositions over time, particularly as the world of data and energy converge. So when we were, we've certainly been on a journey over the last several years in terms of uh, transforming our retail business. Uh, but as we look to the future, we felt that the current technology stack um, and also operating model would need to go through another step change. And we've certainly been um, looking across the world at various organisations and technologies. And what struck us about Octopus Energy is that they certainly had built their own Kraken platform, but they were also one of the fastest growing energy retailers in the United Kingdom market. So they were not just founded both in technology, they were an energy company that had grown, uh, grown a business. And really what we were attracted to was they had established a technology that linked to both an operating model and culture that really step change. They have the highest customer satisfaction and the lowest cost to serve by some margin in their home market. And uh, we entered into discussions with them and we really... Um, that evolved into a strategic partnership where we not only are going to employ the Kraken technology and implement it into our market, but we also have a 20% shareholding in their company as they continue to grow both their retail business but also the licensing of their technology. And, uh, and they've recently entered into a very large licensing arrangement into the United Kingdom market. And really what we're attracted to is that the Kraken system is all centred around the customer. Um, so traditional energy systems are all centred around the meter, and the meter, as you know, is not the customer. And so what they've really been able to do is um, create um, quite a customer-centric technology and operating model which enables um, small teams that are highly empowered and autonomous for the end-to-end -end customer management. Um, and therefore, they, they, you have a small team, 10 or 12 people would be looking after 50 or 60,000 of the same customers and what that really does do is it really does um, translate into a much higher customer experience um, and really makes a lot of those key customer events very, very simple. So, as I said, they're consistently rated number one. We're implementing it. We really do think it'll be a step change for our business. And then the only other thing I would add to it is that the way it's set up, the, the nature of the technology will enable us to um, really um, release new products in a very agile way over time, and that, I think, is only going to benefit, as I said to you earlier, what is a very rapidly changing energy market. So we're very excited by the opportunity. I, I agree. It's a game-changer, and it is very exciting. So well done. I love the focus on the customer versus the meter, too. That's a completely different orientation. So, Frank, one of the topics I wanted to 
discuss with you is about climate change. And we've talked about, you touched on that at the beginning of our conversation. And you emphasize, if I heard you correctly, that Origin is evolving the renewables portfolio such that it will represent 25% of your generation capacity. Does the energy transition continue in its importance in the post-COVID world, or do you potentially see it taking a little bit of a back burner as we deal with the after effects of the pandemic and the fact that fossil fuel commodity prices are uh, quite low right now? How do you see the energy transition faring in a, in a post-COVID world? I actually think uh, COVID is accelerating many things um, when it comes to technology, and I would put the energy transition um, also into into that category. Um, you're absolutely right that maybe the, the price signal is not as strong, but I do think what we've seen is the adoption of technology by our customers has accelerated through this time. I think what we will see is a continued driving uh, by governments to actually support the transition. Um, so those forces are already in play, but we actually do think that, uh, that the pandemic accelerates some of these factors. You're right to point out that a driving force is economics, um, but what we're seeing right now is that in our market, it's, a, it's a, been a rapid growth in renewables because there's a new build technology. Um, those those um, lower emissions technologies are certainly um, some of the lowest cost now to build. I think, interestingly enough, one of the key things that we're, that we're actually navigating now is not the fact that we'll see greater up, uh, build of solar, wind and rooftop solar. It's actually how we retire some of the coal plant and have um, the renewables supported by the right suite of what we call firming technologies. But uh, that's, a, that's a market design. It's something the world's going through in various ways. Um, that's one of the key challenges to get right. But to your broader point, we definitely will see, I think, an acceleration through this time. And I think part of your strategy is leveraging gas-fired generation as a backstop for renewables. There are some that say it's an important transition fuel in the energy transition, and then there are others that say it really should not be a part of the transition, that it is considered more of a fossil fuel. Well, what's your view on the role that gas might or might not play in the energy transition? So, Regina, I think where the debate gets stuck here is that people talk about gas replacing coal or, or, or being opponents of fossil fuels. And I, actually, it isn't true. And I think to move forward, there has to be some acknowledgement that the two sides have more they agree on than they disagree. Uh, we believe that renewables will do the heavy lifting for energy supply, but what we will need is enough burning generation that I mentioned earlier to support the reliability and a number of technologies, at least in Australia, will need to be deployed to fulfil this role. Uh, batteries for short bursts, hydro for intraday peaks, uh, and gas for when firming is required over a number of days or weeks. And certainly in Australia, we, we do require uh, that firming from gas for, for those number of days or weeks. We have had over 4,000 megawatts of coal that have exited since 2014, and no material dispatchable generation has been added since 2013. At the same time, we've had over 7,000 megawatts of new renewable energy supply that's come online. So you can see that's really the, uh, the system planning that we require. And we see gas-fired generation as crucial into the 2030s as coal retires. I think beyond 2030s, 
it gets less certain because there's a wide range of potential outcomes and where various technologies will be priced in the market. So I hope that explains a little about how we're thinking about the role of gas and um, and, and adds a little more depth to the to the role it plays um, that that helps the helps the debate. I think the way you segmented it re- relative to storage intraday and then longer-term supply needs makes a lot of sense, and and it's a very thoughtful, robust portfolio. Mm -hmm. I would offer that there are probably states in the United States that could benefit from that type of programmatic thinking. It's a key challenge for policymakers to get the right market settings in order for the right investment in that dispatchable generation to be made. And, uh, and clearly we're working with them in Australia who actually produce those outcomes because it's critical in terms of reliability and, the, and an effective transition. Frank, I know these are tough times, but I also know they won't last forever. So to that yeah. end, what positive message or closing remark would you want to leave with our energy industry listeners? I just think it's such an exciting time to be in the energy industry. I mean, we're seeing the biggest shift in energy the, you know, for 100 years. Um, so we're seeing electricity, which was traditionally provided and generated through large centralised power stations in a single direction to the customer's meter. Someone's meter was read four times a year. You chose an energy retailer and forgot about it. Well, those days are over. You know, the electrons now flow both ways. There are trillions of data points. There are connected devices. Energy companies will be aggregators of those electrons. And the ones that will succeed will be the ones that best harness that data to make energy easier and simpler, and I think cleaner also for their customers. You can see that that transition is one of the great things that we can achieve over um, the coming decades. The role of gas, but also battery and hydro just makes the evolution of energy supply also exciting. So I think energy companies have a great challenge to rise to and bring their customers along with them. And by continuing to innovate, improving the customer experience, taking the actions, being bold, um, I think it's just an exciting place to be. So uh, we'll, we'll continue to uh, face into those challenges, but I just see lots of opportunity for those that can, can harness all of those aspects. Couldn't agree more. Very exciting time. And I'm hoping that some of our younger listeners will take the inspiring words that, Frank, you just said about the innovation, the technology, the importance of data, um, because the industry is adapting and transforming, and I think it's a great place to start a career as well as end a career. Thank you again for joining me, Frank. It's been a pleasure to have you. Thank you very much, Regina. It's been a pleasure to be with you today. Thank you for listening to our podcast episode on Energy Industry Perspectives from Down Under. A transcript of this episode is now available on the KPMG Global Energy Institute at www.kpmgglobalenergyinstitute.com. Be sure to subscribe to the KPMG Current Conversations podcast to be notified of new episodes.